Welcome to another edition of QCBiz on Times Live. And I am delighted to have someone on the show today that I have deep respect for, Henny van Vieren, who has done a lot over the years. I think at the heart of what he has been doing in civil society is really to make the case for transparency and to insist on transparency actually being lived as a value. Uh, through which, in turn, accountability in the country can be entrenched, as well as the rule of law. He is, of course, well known as someone who is currently the director of Open Secrets. And we're going to be speaking about the Zondo Commission's state capture reports. The first two bits of it has been out for a couple of weeks, and I wanted it to breathe a little bit before we ask higher grade questions. I'm going to make an assumption. If it doesn't apply to you, then you should listen to previous parts of the explainer journalism that we've done on Eusebius on Times Live. And otherwise, just go and Google what some great journalists have said in, by way of summarizing the key insights from the first two parts of the report. But the assumption that I'm making is that even if you didn't read the report, that you must have read, I don't know, five to 10 different pieces of journalism. Maybe you listened to Open Secrets on Twitter in one of their Twitter spaces. Uh, maybe you listen to one or two of my podcasts where I've brought the experts on to explain what the main findings were in the first two bits of the reports that had been released thus far. And now the question is, given your baseline knowledge, if you had to think critically without dissing the commission, because what they've done is a brilliant job, what were some of the areas that perhaps could have been handled better and hopefully will be answered in the big final part of the report that will be released in the next couple of weeks. And that is the basic framework for this conversation with Henny. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Eddie, thanks so much for coming on Eusebius on Times Live. Eusebius, it's great to be here. Thanks very much for the invitation and greetings to the listeners. So, you've been very appreciative and your colleagues. You've spoken about the hits across the two different parts of the report that have been released thus far. And there's a lot there that is actually worth highlighting. Maybe for the sake of balance, in case someone hasn't caught me in a different space or you in a different space, let's just spend a minute or two around, from an appreciative point of view, why those first two parts of the report were so important and is a fundamentally important basis for accountability. Yeah, thanks, Eusebius. I mean, 
I think, you know, the point you make, we need to appreciate what has worked in terms of the Zondo Commission and what the contribution of the Zondo Commission uh, over the last few years has been to our understanding of pretty complex, complicated processes that by their very nature exclude most of us from the debate. Um, most of us are not, and I'm not a forensic auditor, I'm not even a lawyer. Uh, we're all trying to figure these things out. And, you know, the, the way I think in which financial crimes and economic crimes work across the world, it's a fair amount of sophistry. It's, a, it's an attempt to try and create complexity, sometimes when there isn't but it's it's just it's it's layering um, camouflage upon camouflage, and it makes it almost impenetrable. Now, what the Zonda Commission did, in a way, if you like to think about it, is what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did. It said, uh, in ways of very different crimes, the crime of apartheid and the crime of state capture, that we are going to try and break down uh, to an extent uh, the role of the perpetrators. And you know, we'll come to the fact that not all the perpetrators we would argue have been correctly identified, but certainly we're going to get, give you a better understanding of how this played out, what the economic impact of this was, um, and we will bring at least some of those, those actors to account before the commission. And I think that it has done powerfully. And of course, those actors include and, and should include the corporations, the middlemen, and the politicians. And some of those politicians appeared, others bulked, as we know, with former president Jacob Zuma. But there's a power in, in a judicial process calling these people to appear. So uh, maybe you see this, it's a broad point, but I think one we, we shouldn't underestimate, and I, I think we'd argue also that Open Secrets and others have argued in civil society, we can quickly become quite cynical about commissions and say, you know what, it's another billion rand that was spent on a talk shop. And, and I think that there's more value here, and we must be very cautious about dismissing all of this. It places an enormous amount of pressure on the institutions of governance like the National Prosecuting Authority to do something, because now we've got this body of evidence. A judge has listened to this. It's our Deputy Chief Justice. And, um, you know, as civil society, we can place pressure and it validates the work of investigative journalists or the media that you spoke about. Um, and it isn't left at the point of conjecture. We've, we've got it. We've got some cold, hard facts. And that gives us, I think, the basis to do the important work of holding the powerful to account. A beautifully submitted in terms of the top line functional usefulness, and even if the word functional doesn't do justice to the texture of the work done by the Commission. I don't know how many we will get to, but I want to structure our conversation very simply with headlines of thematic areas that could have been dealt with better. Some were not dealt with at all, others were dealt with, but perhaps not sufficiently deeply. And I know that you and your team have focused on some of these. I've recalled some that have been discussed that I want to lift to the surface. And once we're done, we can decide extemporaneously whether there are any obvious ones that I've left off that you can insert into the conversation. Don't wait for me to prompt sure. you um, or just note them down and make sure we get to them. Mm -hmm. The first is there's a bit of concern from some experts, some of your colleagues, that perhaps the first two parts of the report are very ad hoc in their use of case studies. So you've got SAA, you've got the New Age deep dive, Danielle deep dive, Transnet deep dive. But then we've got this thing which many of us use in terms of a turn of phrase that I think it's useful to explain simply to the, to the public. Systems analysis and institutional analysis, as opposed to analyzing case by case 
example here and there of an instance of state capture. What are your views on that? Do you think that there was a sufficient stepping back from the individual cases to say, here are the patents, let us do systems analysis of how state capture operates, or do you think that there was sufficiently good deep dives done under each one of the big cases that were illuminated for a person with a three-digit IQ to be able to make the right inferences about systems? Sure. You see this, I mean, if if we uh, step back for a, a moment and recognize that, of course, the commission is guided by a terms of reference set by the president, as all commissions are. The terms of reference for this commission was also guided by uh, the, the recommendations that it made, obviously, by advocate uh, Tuli Madoncela as public protector. And that was really the focus on the capture of state-owned enterprises. So, as you say, the deep dive is in a really important place for us to focus. We need to understand what happened, as you say, at Danel and SAA in a transnet, the new age, and equally, we are still to find out, for example, about Prasa that must still come, South African Airways. Um, uh, so, so I think we, we haven't yet seen the last of those. They do give us a, a narrative, a story that really paints uh, the process of how, uh, to an extent, the institutions um, were captured. And, and I think that there's two things that are missing. Um, the one is what the impact is. And I'd like us to come back to that if we can, you see this in our conversation, because what does actually means for ordinary folk is something that I feel... Yeah, I was going to get to that in my second one, but we can also be dynamic about it. We don't have to be so um, sort of slice it off the way I want to, um, because I think that's something that I really appreciated from your first Twitter space. Yeah, so, so you see this, if I may then, you know, take, take your cue there, but, you know, I, I think we, we would argue that what the commission should have done right up front is to say, there's a reason we're doing this. We're not doing this only because we're technocrats. Yes, we are lawyers, and it's our job to establish the facts, but our our, our reason for doing that is that the state capture project, if that's what we are determined, and as is the case with most economic crimes involving elites or very powerful interests within both the public and private sector and politicians, is um, to effectively to, to, to steal from ordinary folk, to make people poorer. There's, there is only one consequence of state capture and corruption, um, and it is not a faceless crime, as former President Jacob Zuma asserted. Every single, whether it is the uh, you know the economic crimes of apartheid, uh, if we can look at those, or it's the crimes of state capture or, or any kind of local government level corruption that we see ongoing right now, um, it impacts on people directly. We have some indication of the impact in the sense that um, there were probably, according to the to, to stats SA, about a million and a half jobs um, that should have been created in between the period 2008 and 2015, roughly, that were not created. So there was a massive uh, impact on economic growth, but equally just on the ability to employ people. And that has driven people into deeper poverty. We can't say that high levels of unemployment today are only the result of state capture, but the crimes of these corporations and these politicians has resulted in misery. And, and we, we would argue that the commission um, did fail, unfortunately, or, and, and, and I say fail because we've, we're really a civil society banged on their door often to say, um, please organize hearings with affected communities. Uh, that doesn't mean Open Secrets as an NGO is going to come and tell you. I don't think we are, and quite frankly, we are um, advocates for justice, but we are not affected in the same way as folks who don't have access to a hospital uh, uh, or textbooks at a school. And I think that we needed to hear that strongly in the Commission's findings, and we anticipate if the Zondo Commission, I trust the drafters are listening to your podcast, 
that uh, that the DCJ I hope would 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 really push this issue hard because I think it is important that the the people who are victims of state capture are heard. Loud. I want to come back to that in a second because I think it's a really important point. But just for the sake of hygiene, let me just summate where we are at. So. On what I, this, I mean, I, I think I was a little bit inarticulate around the point about systems and institutions. If you take a book like Deep Collusion, for example, by Ethel Williams, mm-hmm. I really liked the conceptual work that he does to tell us what the difference is between different kinds of malfeasance, including, crucially, the difference between, say, for example, an inflated invoice corruption as we know it and state capture and why state capture has got a very particular kind of intentionality and a method behind it, how you set up hollowing out a particular department or state so that you can fleece it into perpetuity in an ideal scenario if you win as as a criminal, which is very different to, you know, renting out my tent to you for 500 rand um, and giving you 200 rand and taking 300 rand when ordinarily I would have done so for 50 rand and still make a profit. But because you and I are buddies and you are corruptible as the official signing off on the tender, we have managed to inflate it. Mm. And there's a difference between that and state capture. So in a similar kind of way, I was just wondering whether those deep dives we were talking about does a good enough job for us as a society to understand the methods that are employed by the goons across the state so we can recognize the red flags quickly the next time it happens? Some people, uh, you see, I don't think so yet. What we haven't seen from those those first two uh, of the three reports from the Zondo Commission is not a real indication of how I think how the system is operated. We have granular detail of, you know, of, of how certain actors uh, constructed certain deals and as, I mean, and in a way went about the capture process in those state-owned enterprises. But what we need to tease out is the way in which particularly the the heads of those institutions, um, uh, whether that's the likes of Tomoyane at SARS or Brian Mulefe, uh, you know, in whichever guise at ESCOM or Transnet, um, how they interacted with a range of players, particularly within the financial sector, both domestically, so within our banks, within the kind of middlemen operations, if you like, the, the service, financial services companies like regiments and others. And of course, the very crucial role that the lawyers uh, from the big law firms in places like Santon and the center of Cape Town, the big auditing firms, PwC, uh, KPMG, Deloitte, or Deloitte as we often refer to them as, uh, um, uh, how the role that all of the auditing companies have played. And, and you know, when we talk about the banks, of course, Eusebius, it's not only the domestic banks, FNB, Standard Bank to an extent, uh, um, APSA, and of, and of course, Nedbank, but it's also the global banks like uh, HSBC and others. And that's a system of extreme of not only capturing institutions locally to benefit um, elites that are living in Saxon world, the Guptas, if you like, and they're, they're the politicians they are close to, the, Gupta, the Zuma family, for example. But it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a system that continues to perpetuate itself because there's an entire financial industry built offshore globally that is making a fortune out of this kind of misery in countries like South Africa right now. Uh, and Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, you can see how much I'm an admirer of the work that you and your team has been doing because um, that's exactly 
Um, it's almost as if we'd planned this conversation. I wanted to segue into the banks next. Uh, we've talked about systems analysis. We'll get to banks number three. But I just want to ask one devil's advocate question about the opportunity cost of state capture, the face of state capture. You started off by constraining criticism, fairly so, by reminding us that there were terms of reference. The most important thing as South Africans that we presumably ultimately want, if we can't get everything, is justice and reparations. Mm. But we don't have the equivalent of a Desmond Tutu going around the country, inducing tears in City Hall in East London with people telling stories of what happened when a feeding scheme collapsed as a result of state capture. Why would you bemoan that not having been done? Because that's beyond scope and there would have been massive scope creep. There would have been scope creep to an extent, but I think it's the natural nature of lawyers to be quite conservative. And, and the way in which the big corporations and politicians and others who are involved in these deals constantly, again, not only want us to deal with uh, complexity, but they kind of want to rip the idea of that there's, there's an emotional connection to it, i.e. that there are people that are impacted. The, the job of a commission, I would argue, is to say, uh, let us be reminded that there are there are millions of citizens that are at the very center of the story. It's not, quite frankly, I, I, I don't want to place, uh, you know, the, the individuals, again, I'm using their names, Tom Oyani or Brian Molefe or Yaki Quinana or Eric Wood, uh, and there's a range of others uh, we can think of at the center, at, at always only at the center of the, the story. Um, I think there's a danger if we constantly place uh, the impact this has had at the periphery. Also, because the public, we're not able to build a public trust and confidence that people feel like they are heard in this process. Uh, it becomes a, an, an external process involving lawyers and experts uh, and, and, frankly, folks like us who spend too much time reading about these things. And so I think it's a missed opportunity from the side of, of DCJ. I don't think it needed to be months long of those hearings, but it could have just been a little bit of hard work. And quite importantly, you see this, I would argue, just some imagination is, what, is all we were asking I, I couldn't disagree with that. I think that's important. And as you know, you are always fair and balanced in your criticism of how the rest of us get on in our mutual collaboration as media and civil society organizations to try and entrench accountability. Very often over the years, even before I enter the media, the way stories around economic crimes are reported is that it's extremely rare to to have the victims centered and you're almost instantly eligible for an award if you bother to go and speak to let's say for example in the free state the black people that were deprived of open opportunity to become farmers because of freedom and it shouldn't be noteworthy when it's done because it should be standard that the victims of corruption the survivors of corruption of state capture and the impact should be storyboarded in narrative journalism in a way that is fairly common. And the same goes for this commission. On the question of banks, can we continue where you left off that trail of thought? It's fascinating to me that the electronic flow of illicit money is crucial to being able to eventually get that money in hard cash and then to live off it and to deprive society of what should have been done with that particular money. And it's such a simple thought, as one of your researchers put in your second uh, spaces, I think, that 
again, it's it's it boggles the mind that there shouldn't be a bigger spotlight shone on the banking system that is intrinsic to the flow of of illicit money. And and I can't understand why that why that is the case. Speak into that for me. And do you think that perhaps there will be a coda to the massive final report that deals with it better? Well, you know, my, my hope springs eternal, firstly, Eusebia. So I'm, 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 I, I would wish for that to be what comes out uh, in the third of these reports. Uh, I am worried right now, and we are, we are quite concerned that at, as things stand, the commission has been soft on the banks, just to put it bluntly. And I say that with great care. Uh, I'm not suggesting prejudice on the side of the commission, but I'm suggesting a, a, a way of practice which operates again around the globe, where the big banks are, are involved. Uh, you know, consider, and now let me use the example, consider our own Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, they, we, the one area which we struggled to look at was the role of the big banks around the world in propping up apartheid. And there was always this concern that, you know, the, the government of Nelson Mandela would be put under pressure by by big corporations and banks that we rely on for lines of credit. Now, the question is whether politicians and others have been expressing a similar similar concern behind closed doors. That I don't know about. But what we do know, you see this, is that um, we've seen from the report, the two reports thus far from the Commission, very clear indications that banks have been named. Nedbank has been named very clearly uh, in terms of uh, what were known as interest rate swaps. So basically, profiteering of, of interest rate payments uh, at both SAA and Transnet. And let me add, you see this, what wasn't even in the Commission's report, we suspect is material that that, um, that they had in their possession, but I don't think they properly looked at was that uh, banks like Nedbank and companies like regiments may have been involved in similar types of activities at Denel as well. Now, um, our, you know, our, our concern is that while the Commission does say, particularly when it comes to SAA, let's use the Nedbank as an example, they make reference there to the need for there to be further investigations into the role of Nedbank. Uh, when we look at Transnet, which of course was where the biggest was the biggest platform for, for state capture in terms of the amount of money involved, the amount of cash involved, the opportunities for corruption. There again, Nedbank is implicated, but there's this inconsistency where the commission doesn't say we want to ensure that there, we are arguing that there's a need for, for potential criminal prosecutions. And we argue one of all that is that the commission never called Mike Brown, who's the head of um, Nedbank, to appear before the commission and gruel him day after day by asking hard questions and say, say to him, Mike Brown, you've been CEO, CEO, if I'm correct, you see this from about 2010, 2011. So throughout the state capture period, we know that Nedbank has been complicit in a range of ways. It's the same way we would ask around FNB and Standard Bank in this Stina project and grill these people. Um, and, and, you know, we'd, we'd like to think about it as we see Yaki Quinana. We wouldn't forget that that unfortunate exchange, right, with the evidence leaders uh, that's been widely broadcasted where she speaks about the Fed Cook project she was involved, you know, the analogy of a Fed Cook project. Well, Mike Brown was running a, a croissant bakery, basically. I mean, they were all in the pastry <laughs> business. And, and we didn't see him being ruled in the same way. And I think that that has seeped through into the actual report and the way that it's drafted. Um, Are you concerned, as a parenthetical question, that though that could potentially be defended narrowly, legalistically, from a scope point of view, 
that these reports, which is part of the point you made earlier in relation to the importance of giving a face to state capture, buying legitimacy, denting a crisis confidence that the public has in relation to the state in general, would you be equally concerned as Open Secrets that it gives ammunition to those who are implicated to try and begin to critically undermine the Commission's work, not in the court of law, but it's the kind of thing that a troll can easily blow out of proportion with graphics and with bots and generate a conversation around prejudice. Yeah, I, look, I, I think you see this, that uh, your your question is spot on because you know we've we I mean we haven't said this publicly, but we've even gone to the extent of uh, uh, intimating that to the commission to say if you don't do if you don't if you are not seen. 100% by the public to act with all to to probe all of the powerful players in the same manner you are going to open yourselves up to criticism that's your choice but you should know that i mean none of us want you to fail we want you to succeed in this task in in the way you use public monies ultimately as a you know as a, as a state function so so i do think that um you know, I think that the, the commission has opened itself up to that criticism. And, and let me make the point as well is that uh, in, in roughly about 16 months ago, it was actually on, on what we call Reconciliation Day of 2020, we sent a letter to the commission. You see, they're signed by former TRC commissioners, signed by uh, 20 or 30 civil society organizations calling for the commission to call the powerful companies to account. And we said in that is that for there to be a an a element of reconciliation, we need to make sure that Jacob Zuma et al. appear, but the corporations must appear. That is our process of truth-telling that we need to see in that Absolutely. process. And, and although Professor Mosala and his colleagues have been excellent in the way they've dealt with a range of issues, on this particular issue, I, I fear they fudged. They never even responded. Mm. You know, we, we are not worried about not hearing back from the commission. But when you have, uh, as I said, people that have some standing in our society, TRC commissioners and others writing, uh, imploring the commission to act and then never bothering to respond, I am worried that they didn't take this seriously mm. enough. And rightly so, there should be some criticism mm. of that. However, maybe the last quick point, Eusebius, does that mean that the work of the commission in its entirety is flawed? No, I don't think sure. so. Um, but did we get 100% on this? No, they, you know, they, haven't, they haven't passed as well as they should have, quite clearly. For those of you who've got structured minds and who are counting, we've spoken about systems analysis that could have been better. We've spoken about how stories could have been heard about the impact of state capture, giving it a face. We've spoken about inefficient attention being drawn to the banking sector locally and internationally in their role. And I want to just touch on two or three more and then we will close it there for today. One thing that you're very passionate about is the global armaments trade, uh, not least because it's deadly, literally. And it also has got massive economic crimes behind it besides costing us lives. Here is one of those criticisms that one could push back against and say you want the commission to boil the ocean, which is never a good thing to attempt to do because you won't do it in anyone's lifetime. Tell me a little bit more why you and your colleagues feel that better contextualization of what happened at Danelle should have happened. And as I understood it and take all from here, 
again, you wanted more stories of how, for example, the SANDF ultimately couldn't do some of its own work properly, like during the July riots, because of causal connections to fleecing of institutions, outfits like Danel, but also more importantly, you wanted what has happened at Danel to be placed in the context of the global battle against illicit, deadly, and um, from an economic crimes point of view, horrific trade in, in arms. Yeah, UCBS, I mean, not, not all public institutions are perfect, but I think uh, Danel in particular is a problematic one. Firstly, we recognize that there are workers who work at Danel and they have rights that need to be respected. And the commission, again, I argue, I would argue, we feel that the section on Danel was rushed. It's, that's the best way to describe it. If you read it, you get a feeling like, um, frankly, better care should have been taken given the import of this matter in writing it. But having said that, um, one of the things they don't mention is, of course, the fact that there, there are workers at Danel have not been paid for many, many months. And that has a direct impact on people's existence. And we need to firstly recognize that. But secondly, also recognize the fact that while South Africa has every uh, good reason to have a functioning defense force that acts within the framework of the constitution, and obviously what happened last year in terms of the instigation of an insurrection, we needed intelligence agencies and, of you know, which would have been deeply impacted by state capture to have been detected this. And we needed an army that has the ability to deal with, again, uh, uh, aspects of that with, within the realm of the constitution. But it's recognizing that the null in the way it has operated, despite the attempts by the Guptas to through different schemes VR laser uh, uh, and and what was called Danel Asia and India to capture effectively Danel with the okay argue of Lynn Brown who's to be investigated says the commission uh, or prosecuted rather for complicity in that um, uh, Danel through its partnerships with particularly German-owned um, companies like Rheinmetall have been producing weapons that are uh, uh, we know being used against civilians by the countries, by the United Arab Emirates, so Dubai mm. and, and Saudi Arabia. And those are weapons we export to those countries with the knowledge that those weapons are, are frequently used to target civilians and murder civilians. So um, it's a mixed bag. And I think we need to recognize that this is not a, 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 you know, a company like ESCOM or Transnet or Prasa that needs to make sure that people get to work on time. It's involved in a pretty dirty business around the globe. And I think that should have been reflected. In, 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 in. I think that's fair. I think that's very important. Again, I suppose someone might, if they were trying to defend the commission, commission would say part of that analysis is geopolitical consequences of what happened at Danel, and that will be for a more complete story. But I wonder whether that's part of the terms of reference. Do you feel that it should, or would you, again, <laughs> want to sneak in a, a, a retort along the lines, as you did earlier, that with a little bit of imagination, one doesn't have to be confined by the legalistic terms of 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 reference given by the president of the back of Tuli Maruncela's recommendations. Yeah. I mean, um, because again, a deep dive into the international relations implications of Danel being captured is critically important. But that sounds to me like a book proposal. 
No, well, we've got too many books to write already, you see, yes, but but I I do think, I think that context is everything uh, in part. It's it's our appreciation of the law, it's our appreciation of justice, and and, and I don't, uh, you know, again, I, I had imagined we would see much more of this from the side of the DCJ, uh, in in the way that our constitution demands it, it doesn't it doesn't say to us, let, let's look at this through a narrow, blinkered way uh, way of only seeing black and white. I mean, the, the beauty of this is it allows us to reinterpret the law in the interests of people, right? And that's what we wanted to see. Sure. So I do think uh, there, there was a cons- there was a slightly conservative approach. I think that's fueled as well by uh, you know the concern uh, of the kind of challenges the commission might face uh, in future, but but. Again, Again, you know, I think that's what leadership is about, and uh, that's what we needed from the DCJ. I would argue in this instance. Second, last one I want to pick up on, and you can tell me whether you're exhausted after that or whether there's one you want to add. You've shone the spotlight on the banks. The other group of professionals. I mean, I hear you're an auditors, but I think outside of the commission, at least, you know, the auditing profession recognizes that they've got a horrible ethical and reputational crisis that can not be solved with cheap PR, but with deep self-examination and overhaul. But then there's a category of professionals that are also crucial to the success of state capture that I'm not so sure whether they've been sufficiently publicly um, flogged for their role. And I wonder what you think. And those are the law firms and the lawyers. Yeah, look, uh, I I would absolutely agree. You know, we should be reminded that the way in which the the big deals are structured that basically facilitate state capture required the involvement of, as you say, of the auditors uh, who are often acting as management consultants as well. So we, we know, lest we forget, it's this duality of roles that they play, um, both being being uh, not only auditors on the one hand, so checking the books, but also helping you to kind of think about creative ways in which to restructure your business. And obviously that those ways include illicit criminal ways. And we think about a company, which isn't an auditing company, but a company like Bain that played a very central role at SARS, the destruction of SARS. But um, I think rightly so that the lawyers are required to make sure that you are putting in place um, the, the systems, the front companies that are required to launder the cash around the world. Now, Think about the money that was stolen from Transnet. HSBC, the bank, the you know the big global bank. Um, there was a whole series of front companies that was established in both Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, and in Hong Kong that was used to move that cash offshore. That required lawyers who were going about the process of of setting that up, advising uh, these various actors throughout the process. And I don't think we have sufficiently identified the role of all of these lawyers. Again, I'm not convinced we've seen enough um, opportunity to call some of the big law firms that in different ways were advisors to the state-owned enterprises in that in that instance. And I, I guess the question here is, Eusebius, to what extent was their willingness within the commission to be critical of themselves? Because the advocates who are working at the commission are often are mostly on brief uh, when they're not at the commission by the same law firms, right? So, uh, I mean, it is a it is a commission that was largely staffed, not exclusively, but by lawyers. And and I think mm. that there's a, um, mm. a it's not an, it's not a, f- a fatal failing of the commission, but I do think that it is a big challenge. Uh, within the you know within the legal system more generally for us to find ways to recognize that that lawyers are very much complicit in these crimes. 
we're going to draw the discussion to a close. If you are mathsy, um, you will know that we have thus far dealt with five thematic areas. We've talked about systems and the importance of analyzing the methodology of these crooks across the state, the importance of telling the story of the impact by looking at literally the faces of those whose lives are poorer as a result of the opportunity cost of state capture. Thirdly, banks, a spotlight need to be shone on their role, their culpability legally and ethically. Fourth, the importance of contextualizing particular case studies, not rushing, as Henny puts it, your analyses of Denel, for example, understanding the impact on workers, but also the geopolitical deadly implications and slotting Denel into a global story. And then what we've just touched on as the fifth, which is the second last one I had prepared theme, is different categories of professions that need to be held accountable. Lawyers and law firms need to be a bigger part of the story. The last one is one you flagged earlier. And again, it's amazing, the complementarity in our thinking. Uh, but that's, this is all courtesy your work because I've been following how you guys have done it. Do you think that all the people that need to have the different parts of the justice system going after them have been listed and identified? Because there are so many advisors, so many boards, board members, ministers, whether it's Malusi, or as I call him, Maluti, Gigupta, or Lynn Brownos, where you will find them in the diagnostic section of a report being analyzed for a very important role they play as an enabler or as a goon. Um, and obviously, they hope that they will get away sometimes with having these convenient excuses of not having as Malusi was gloating on Twitter, they're not being a smoking gun necessarily. But then it, you know, the commission needs to make recommendations. Um, and, and I actually want to turn it into a dual question. Mm. How should the public think through tweets from someone like Malusi that says, hey, after all these years and so much money spent, the main recommendation is further investigations, obviously is is deliberately misinforming the public how to understand what the commission has put out into the public space for those who won't read it. But also in terms of the individuals that should be indicted, is the list complete enough? Yeah, I mean, let's let's answer that if I can, you see this, by also reminding ourselves that, you know, as much as they we're talking about global systems that profit from, from the crimes of uh, state capture, there is a, a lingering system, if you like, of people who benefited from this, and they will have coordinated strategies to, um, to, to uh, you know, stop us from focusing or, or get us to focus on, on other issues instead of the findings, for example, of this commission to try and create counter-narratives. Um, and I think we <clears throat> recognize, I, I would don't <clears throat> see these, some of these individuals in isolation, uh, the beneficiaries of of these type of crimes, I think, um, often operate as a conspiracy while the crime is being committed, and they equally are part of ensuring that there's a cover that that follows that. Let's use very briefly the example, of course. Let's not forget the the crime that Jacob Zuma and Talis are accused of for in the in the arms deal, and they were in Peter Maritzburg High Court again today on that. 
That crime is, was actually largely an attempt by Talis to make sure that they would buy Jacob Zuma. So whenever criticism came up about them being awarded that deal, he would be their, their basically their safeguard in future against anyone coming after them, basically blocking the NPA or others, to put it very simply. And, and I think you've got something else at play here as well. And I think that we, um, very clearly need, uh, to, you know, to, 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 to recognize that, that, that's what it is. For this, we need not only the list of people that are that need to be investigated, but we need to recognize, I would argue, Sibis, is that the commission's job was to be able to probe and to provide us with an overall picture of what happened. But parallel to this, of course, the National Prosecuting Authority has much of this information at their disposal, and they should be prosecuting. So we should be, I think, cautious not to the, the Zondo Commission is not the beginning and end of the story of state capture. In fact, they are public institutions, and Shamila Batoy and her colleagues, I think rightly so, must be put under pressure. Uh, it is an institution that is in a level of crisis, has not managed to see the level of prosecutions that we have, and, and I frankly not seeing a level of appetite right now. There's a promise of one or two cases that are going to be brought, but I think yeah. we need to be placed under serious pressure to ensure yeah. uh, that we, you know, that there are big uh, in investigation uh, investigations together with the hawks that lead to prosecutions. And maybe the last point you see this to make is let's not go for the easy way out. And one of the recommendations the Zonda Commission makes is they call for what are called deferred prosecution agreements. So basically, if the companies come forward to the NPA, tell their truth, they can pay a fine, they'll pay back the proceeds of that crime, and they'll, they, and they'll pay a fine, and then they can walk away from this. It's a system that's used in the United Kingdom, in the United States, the big centers of, of corporate power in the world, and it has failed incredibly in those countries because what we've seen is the same banks like HSBC have committed the same crimes repeatedly, but they have a war chest of cash, meaning billions of dollars that they are ready to pay the fines with on each go. Uh, and, I, and I worry that what we are doing here is, uh, frankly, it could be, uh, you know, an, an easy way out. It may even be a slightly lazy way out to let the corporations uh, uh, undertake these deferred prosecution agreements. Ultimately, we want to see, as you say, the list of people, mm. including the CEOs mm. and the, the chair chairman of these boards of those corporations prosecuted along with the politics for the crimes of state capture. Henny, you've been excellent as always. Thank you for your energy, your expertise, your time. We've gone way over what I had invited you to do. And maybe on a sort of postscript in the unlikely event that my curious listeners don't know the work of Open Secrets, just in a minute, tell us what Open Secrets does and where they can follow some of the work that you guys do in real time, you are having a stake in these public conversations to, as I said at the beginning, entrench transparency as a value and accountability and the rule of law. Thanks so much, Yusivis. It's a great privilege to be on, on your show and with your listeners. Um, we, we're, a, we're a small nonprofit organization that does our best to uh, work alongside other partners in civil society and investigative journalists. We, we try and do some of the digging into the profiteers of economic crime where there's a clear human rights abuse. And we use the law where we can to hold 
some of those actors to account and we focus primarily on the corporations, the banks, the, the lawyers, the auditors and the regulators, the state regulators who fail in holding these powerful actors to account. Uh, so it's some of the dirty work of democracy, if you like, but uh, we try and make a small contribution and uh, everything we do is published on opensecrets.org.za or follow us on, on Twitter on, at, uh, at OpenSecrets.za and, uh, and please join, you know, be part of the conversation with us. We're always trying to learn and we always benefit from the tip-offs from uh, from from folks out there who have important stories that need to be told so thank you thanks thanks any all the best to you thanks for coming on much appreciated thanks for seeing this